Uh, I want to draw your attention. Actually, it fits really <laughs> quite well with what Joanna and Vlad were just seeing. How uh, I've, I've seen Jesus and uh, everything is different. Everything has changed. That's kind of what I want to draw out uh, from this chapter. So I hope you're still there. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. It's perhaps... One of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. And uh, I, I know that when I say that, you might kind of snicker or, or wink or laugh because, you know, the pastor is saying this is the most important chapter of the Bible. And he just happens to be preaching from it. And yes, that's true. But this is not an exaggeration. This is not some sort of thing just to draw your attention in. I do believe after uh, really examining this chapter over the last several weeks as I was preparing for this Sunday... That this chapter is sort of the linchpin, the, the, the sort of the cog in everything that makes our faith hum. That makes us uh, champion and shout and rejoice in what we believe. It's often referred to as the resurrection chapter. As Paul spends 58 verses, more or less, defending or explaining the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I don't... I, I don't think we often realize exactly what he's doing because there, there's a level of magnitude and seriousness and a little bit of tension that I think we ought to sit in as Paul writes this chapter. And to feel that, just look at verse 12. Because here I think this is sort of the crux of Paul's argument is derived out of these verses, verses 12 through 14. Notice what he says. Now if Christ be preached... That he rose from the dead. How say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain. And your faith is also vain. Here, these verses, I think, raise the stakes for this chapter tenfold, almost infinitely, for what Paul is about to unpack. That without this, without this in, in crucial tenet of what we believe, that Jesus rose from the dead, this is worthless. This is vain. I'm spewing empty words and you're gathering for really no reason. Here, this is what Paul aims to do throughout all of these verses. He wants these Corinthian believers, and yes, us too, uh, thousands of years later, to realize not just the certainty of the resurrection, that it is true and that we can believe it, but just how crucial it is for this entire thing known as Christianity. <laughs> this is what he's aiming to do here. As he, as he, again, he boldly proclaims that your faith is vain. Notice again verse 13. But if, there, if there's no resurrection... Then Christ is not risen. Verse 14. If Christ be not risen. Then our preaching is vain. And your faith is also vain. And notice verse 17. And if Christ be not raised. Your faith is vain. And you are yet in your sins. That word vain. You might remember as we preach through the, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a similar word except in the Greek. And here it just means empty. It's, it's purposeless, or actually a better way to say it, it's powerless. Your faith is powerless. It's impotent without the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise, we are just wasting our time this morning. We're expending our energy on a lie, on a myth, on a, a fabrication, on a legend. This is what Paul says, notice verse 15. He, 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 he self-identifies that if this is not true, then we are liars, verse 15. Yea, it, we are found false witnesses of God, 
Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. We ought to feel I think this tension. This consideration here. That, that, that Good Friday is an abject tragedy and it stays tragic. And it's a failure of infinite proportions if not for Easter Sunday. The blackness of the grief of the apostles would persist throughout the centuries if there was no Easter Sunday. If there was no resurrection. If Christ did not rise, he is a liar. And all of the things that he proclaimed throughout all of his years during his ministry on earth were just false teachings from a false messiah. And his witnesses are no better. His apostles and followers are no better. They're false witnesses to a false messiah, as he there says. If there is no resurrection, all that we come to believe, all that I spend my time week after week preaching, is nothing but the empty legends of a good moral teacher who came and went just like a lot of others. He's no better than any other good teacher or moral man that has come and gathered a following. If he didn't rise, then there is no ascension. And if there is no ascension, he is not reigning right now as your king forevermore. There is no victory. And as he says, you are yet in your sins. And G. Campbell Morgan, I love what he says, that if there is no resurrection, the whole church is nothing but humbug. (laughs) It's powerless. It's empty. (laughs) Everything that you and I believe. The gospel that we cling to so dearly. It centers around this moment. Easter Sunday when Jesus walked out of that tomb. And it centers around not just that. But the, the fact of the resurrection. Such is what is at stake in this chapter. The fact of the resurrection. And here, essentially, Paul spends 58 verses putting the resurrection on trial. Almost like an examination, like a lawyer. He's putting it through and he's examining it under the microscope. Not because he's doubtful of it. Not because he's sort of questioning it. Because he is so confident in it. It is so true. And he aims to sort of encourage and imbue these Corinthian believers with the same set of of assurances in this doctrine of the resurrection. And it basically comes down to two outcomes. Essentially, this whole chapter is two things. If the resurrection is not true, then nothing matters. As he says there... Your faith is vain. My preaching is vain. Our gathering is empty. It's purposeless. If the resurrection is not true, then all of this is worthless. But, as Rachel, or as, as, uh, as Joanna and Vlad saying, if the resurrection is true, everything changes. If the resurrection is true, all of it is changed in, the, in a moment that all of this truth that has been expounded is indeed true. And we can believe it and hold on to it and cling to it for all of our lives. So therefore he is risen. But how do we know that? How can we be confident that? Notice what Paul does. I want to bring you through three quick Proofs, we could say, three quick uh, uh, evidences to the resurrection that Paul uses throughout this chapter. He begins by giving one of the most concise explanations of the gospel I think that has ever been recorded. 
And here he introduces sort of his first proof, which is the people. Notice firstly, the people. Look at verse 3. He begins, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Here we have, very indeed, the, the facts of the gospel. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose. These are the fundamental tenets of our faith. And apart from these, we have no faith. But to, but to add sort of uh, confirmation and, and credence to what he just said, that Christ rose again, he quickly says that it's not just me that says this. I'm not just some conspiracy theorist who's believing a lie. I'm not just some uh, uh, spaced out dreamer that, that thinks he has found some new sort of mythology. Uh, everyone is testifying to this. He says, he rose again according to the scriptures, verse 5, and that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve. And after that he was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. But some are fallen asleep. And after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. (laughs) There's a whole host of witnesses that would all give testimony to the same thing. That they have seen this Jesus. They saw the living Christ with him. He was, they were interacting with him and talking with him. And he was ministering to them. Jesus The Jesus who died is the same Jesus who rose again. Peter saw him. All the other apostles saw him. Jesus' brother James, you can go talk to him. He saw him. A a gathering, an assembly of over 500 people saw him. And I too, Paul, that is now speaking to you and writing this letter with such boldness and confidence. I saw this Jesus resurrected in the flesh. And I love how he includes that in verse 6. Where he says, if you don't believe me, just go ask someone. They're still around. You can go talk to them. Go go knock on uh, Susie's door. Go knock on Joe's house. You can go talk to them and find out that all this is true. I'm not making this up, he is saying. This is not just a a small sect of people that are sort of claiming this, this crazy miracle. This is a widespread affirmation that the resurrection is true, which lays waste by the way, to, to several uh, sort of ideas that seek to undercut the resurrection, explain it away. Specifically, uh, one of the things that I think this does, specifically these verses, it sort of gets rid of this notion that the resurrection was a, was a grand concocted conspiracy carried out by the apostles. This is what's known as the stolen body hypothesis. <laughs> you know, in the aftermath... Of the cross, you can go read the gospel accounts. Rumors were swirling like wildfire. Because Jesus' body was indeed gone, and everyone was like, oh boy, what do we do with this? (laughs) Something has obviously happened. (laughs) And the apostles are first to get the blame for this. In fact, you can read, you don't have to turn that down, but just mark it down. Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. uh, One of the first sort of ways to explain Jesus' missing body, obviously the apostles stole it. <laughs> They're grave robbers. They wanted to sort of, uh, sort of concoct some sort of explanation that appears unmiraculous. There's got to be a logical explanation for Jesus' missing body, so was the thought. 
But again, Paul's testimony is here. Giving witness to the fact that all of these eyewitness accounts of Jesus, it just blows that theory out of the water. It wasn't just a small group of 12 that gave testimony to the risen Lord. It was above 500. We may even say above 600 people at once if you count all the people that saw him. Emmaus disciples, women, the apostles, and above 500. You're telling me not one of them slipped up? Not one of them was told this, this grand conspiracy and then, and then let the cat out of the bag later on and said, yeah, we just made it all up. No, precisely because they didn't make it up. No one could keep this centuries-old conspiracy. And in fact, believing that this centuries-old conspiracy is still being maintained by the church is more unbelievable than the resurrection itself. (laughs) And I think that's Paul's point. Because he's essentially saying, we all saw him. We all saw this Jesus in the flesh. He is risen indeed. Notice verse 20. He says that. But now is Christ risen from the dead? It's not not some fabrication. It's not some myth. It's not some conspiracy. It's the truth. Which brings me to this. That one of the greatest testimonies to the truth of the resurrection is the church itself. You here this morning, you're preaching to the world, whether you know it or not, or whether you are conscious of it or not, that this is true. Now is Christ risen? And why are we here? Because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. We give evidence to that every time we walk across the threshold into the sanctuary. That Jesus is alive. If you'll, if you'll have patience with me, I want to read you this this. I just got so encouraged by this paragraph from one of my favorite preachers who lays this out in a much better way. Alexander McLaren says, It would be an anomaly far greater than the resurrection itself to believe that these people, Mary and Peter and John and Paul and all of the rest of them, were co-conspirators in a lie. And that the, the fairest system of morality and, noblest, and the noblest the world has ever seen grew up out of a fraud. I believe, he says, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, among other reasons, because I do not understand how it was possible for the church to exist a week after the crucifixion, unless Jesus Christ rose again. Why was it that they did not all scatter? That is what, the John, what John the Baptist followers did when he died. Why did not Christ do the same? Because Christ rose again and re-knit them together. When the shepherd was smitten, the flock would have been scattered and never drawn together anymore unless there had been just such a thing as the resurrection, a search there was, to reunite the dispersed and to encourage the depressed. And so I say, McLaren says, Christianity with a dead Christ and a church gathered around a grave from which the stone has not been rolled away is more unbelievable than the miracle. (laughs) For it is an absurdity. (laughs) It would be absurd if Jesus wasn't risen that we would even be here this morning. 
I pray that you believe in your heart of hearts that Jesus is risen. Because all of this is true. The people throughout time, centuries old confessions of the faith, give credence to the fact that Jesus is written. It's not a lie. It's not a fabrication. It's not a myth. This is the truth and it changes everything. This is the solid rock upon which we stand as a church this morning. That we're not making something up out of thin air. This is the confession of our faith. The deepest part of our faith and our hope is the fact that Jesus is not decaying in a tomb. He is risen and he is alive again. He is the king forevermore. The people. You people this morning. We are evidence That Jesus is risen. But notice secondly. The second proof I think is. The people and then the passion. The passion. Notice verse 10. So Paul is here writing about how he saw Jesus. How he saw this Jesus in the flesh. Well let's look at verse 9. He says I'm the least of the apostles. That I'm not meet. not, Not even right to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, was, which was with me. Therefore, whether I, it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believed. The passion that this resurrection inspired is one of the best proofs to the resurrection itself. And in fact, go to verse 29, because Paul asks some very daring rhetorical questions. Notice verse 29. He asks some questions that we ought to consider. Notice he says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead not rise at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If there's no resurrection, he's essentially saying, what's the point? Why are we ministering? Why are we baptizing people? Why are we willing to put ourselves in harm's way? Why are we willing to stare in the face of death on a daily basis? Why are we doing this at all if this is not true? Have you ever stopped to consider that? I I often stop to consider this. Because some have have another theory that they some have sought to propose to undercut the resurrection and the truth of it is by saying that all of the appearances of Jesus after he died were just visions. They were hallucinations. This is, of course, the vision hypothesis, which you might be curious to know was first put forward by a German theologian in the 1800s. Yes, almost 2,000 years after the event of the resurrection, there is this theory that seeks to explain it, that it's all just a vision. Hallucination of the Lord's closest people. That in their grief, in their sadness, they just imagined that Jesus was there. They imagined that this Jesus was still alive to carry on his legacy, to carry on his message. And if this theory is true, there is no resurrection. And it's just the imagined fantasies of Jesus' closest followers. All of their sermons are just based on emptiness. A dream. <laughs> but of course, 
This notion is beyond absurd, just as we knew about the other confession. Paul's testimony of the crowd, I think, is one of the, one of the best ways to nullify this vision hypothesis of this hallucinated Jesus. Imagine a crowd of 500 people all having perfect recall of the same person. <laughs> have you ever imagined, for example, have you ever had two people witness the same event? Let's say a car accident. Do they ever have perfect recall of what led up to that moment? <laughs> no. Your memory is broken. It's almost next to impossible to recall an event and, and have all the stories line up. Because our memory is fallible. Some will pe- people will think the car was green and the next person will say, no, it was for sure gold. <laughs> yes, some are willing to disregard that well-known phenomena of misconstrued facts about some event and assert that 500 people all have perfect recall of some hallucinated being. They all have the same dream. They all have the same vision. The body of evidence renders that notion just extremely preposterous. Which is also true because this is not a vision. I was so moved this morning during the sunrise service reading Luke 24, 39 where Jesus says, he says, handle me, see me, touch me. It blows that theory out of the water where he says, that touch my body. Why? Because he didn't rise in some spiritual amorphous being. He rose with a body that could be seen and handled and touched and felt and smelt. This is Jesus rising from the grave. Jesus didn't touch a vision. Or excuse me, Thomas. Thomas didn't put his hands in the side of Jesus and it was just some hallucination. He says... My body, risen from the grave, is infallible proof that the resurrection is true. But also, I love what Paul says here in these verses, 29 through 34. About the willingness that he he has to undergo uh, peril, to undergo tragedy, to undergo danger for the sake of this message. Notice again verse 29. What shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by a rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage it me? If the dead rise not, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's saying you've been influenced wrongly by those who have said that there is no resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, what are we doing? Why expend so much energy on this? Why put ourselves in harm way? We should rather just party. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we're going to die. Then you can see through these rhetorical questions, Paul is maintaining 
That those who were close to Jesus and those leaders of the early church afterwards, their readiness, their willingness to put their lives on the line for the sake of this message, their willingness to be okay with dying for the sake of this gospel is evidence that the resurrection is true. They weren't putting themselves in jeopardy for a secret myth, for a conspiracy, for a legend. They were putting themselves in jeopardy for a person who had risen from the grave. Those who risked their lives or lost their lives. Their lives are testimony to the truth of the resurrection. This is the only reason Paul would ever be so ready to stand in jeopardy, to look death in the face. The fact that Jesus was not dead. The fact that they had seen him in the flesh. Jesus wasn't dead and neither was their hope. And guess what? The same is true for you and I this morning. What does the angel say? He is not here, but he has risen. And that message is true for us, emboldening us, encouraging us to stand in jeopardy just like those who have gone before us. Our, our passion for the sake of the gospel is all derived and centered and revolved around the fact that the resurrection and true. Therefore, as it says, we labor as those not in vain in verse 58. We labor for the sake of something that is true and victorious and real. But notice lastly the the proof of the people and the proof of the passion. But notice lastly the proof of the purpose. The purpose. Go back to Paul's opening assertions in the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. Notice again what he says. Moreover brethren I declare unto you the gospel. Which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Notice Christ dying. Is made victorious because, as he says in verse 4, that he rose again the third day. And that is so because it was according to the scriptures, as he says. I love the fact that he repeats that phrase twice in these verses. This claim that Jesus did not rise, that there is no resurrection. It's not just a denial of something that's true. It's a denial of God himself. This is what God has been leading towards all along. The resurrection isn't a man-made myth. It's the program of God in the world. It's the mission and the ministry of Christ himself. The resurrection is what this was all about. It's not a man-made sort of trifle meant to inspire encouraging words and and to uh, uh, construct this system of faith. The resurrection is is at the heart of what God has always wanted to do with this world. The resurrection lies at the center of God's plans for this sin-ridden earth. Notice that's what he's getting at in verse 34 where he says, Awake to righteousness. 
This has been his plan all along. Wake up and see it. There is no good news apart from this resurrection. There's no good news apart from the fact that Easter Sunday is true. All those myths that seek to explain the resurrection, they're all concocted in man's logic. And this is the point. The resurrection surpasses human understanding precisely because it's a work of God. It's God's action in our world. His deepest, most true action, which is to resurrect His Son. As the substitutionary King. As the true King for us. It's a work that has been promised and prophesied of old. When he says according to the scriptures. He is thinking perhaps about Psalm 16 verse 10. Or Hosea 6 verse 2. Or Isaiah 53. He's thinking about all of those scriptures. Which testify to the fact that this one righteous Messiah. Would yes die but would be risen again. And I thought about this too. That all of the wretchedness of history, sin and rebellion and and violence and hatred and and wickedness and, and all of the perversions that define man. All of that is reversed in one weekend. You see, this is, the, this is the wonderful truth that the resurrection is God's great reversal of sin and death. It's his checkmate of Satan. I love, I, I was thinking actually just yesterday, the fact that, that Good Friday seems tragic. Satan thinks he's won. And so do the apostles. They lock themselves away, as it says in John 20. They're hiding out of fear for the Jews. Their names are being circulated as grave robbers. They have been known to be uh, in the closest company with this Jesus, this traitor, this blasphemer. And now it's, it's all tragically failed. All the, the hopes of the kingdom that Jesus was preaching about, that are all dashed. All the, the promises that Jesus was making to these disciples, all of those seem as big lies. He's dead. We saw him die on the cross. There's a darkness that ought to be, to be sat in in that moment. Where it appears as though darkness has won. But then, then we have that glorious promise. That Jesus is the light of the world and the darkness could not overcome it. That he is the light that overcomes the world. And then resurrection morning. Death no longer has the final word. Because as it says at the end of chapter 15 uh, verse 54. Death is swallowed up in victory. He reverses sin and death. The resurrection is actually the death knell of death. Where death is put to, get, put to death as he says in verse 24, where he says, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. That 
which came in through Adam, is destroyed by Christ. Death, the curse, the the penultimate curse of sin, that's put away by this Christ, this second Adam. And here we have the truth that the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. It's the the divine stamp of approval on all that Jesus has ever said or ever did. It's the fulfillment of that promise at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Serves as the assurance that the cross worked. We sing victory in Jesus. Not because of some random belief. But because the resurrection is true. We have victory in Jesus. Because he's not dead. He is alive. All of the sins of mankind. All of the wretchedness and horror. All of those were left behind. As Jesus left that tomb. He is victorious for you and for me. The penalty of sin is paid for. And he is alive as our intercessor. As our redeemer. As our king forevermore. And now we believe as it says in verse 22. That we are made alive in Christ. We stand in victory Because of Christ. And we too believe. That we will be raised. I love the fact that throughout this. Paul is here hinting at the fact that. Because Jesus has resurrected. It guarantees yours. You will be resurrected too. He says in verse 51. Notice. Behold. I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality, the resurrection of the dead. See, ours ours is an Easter world. (laughs) It's a world where Easter is true. The resurrection is a fact. And the blackness of Good Friday cannot overcome the triumph of Easter. Yes, no matter what our current moment looks like. Easter is coming. Resurrection is true. Jesus is victorious. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And we, the people, and our passion, and our purpose, all is centered in the fact that, yes, he is risen indeed. Let us pray.